The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. It's uh, pulled the fire alarm in the children's church room. The, the bells go off. And I'm sitting there thinking, what should we do? Well, I don't smell smoke. I don't see fire. You know, there's an exit door there. We can hurry out. So let's just keep going. It was a mistake. Okay, do not do this. This is not the way you respond to a fire alarm. See, there are some things in life that you can stay indifferent towards, right? Like, hey, where do you want to go to eat? I don't care. You know, what show do you want to watch? I don't care. But there are other things in life that are so important, that are a matter of life and death, that you can't help but respond to. You cannot be indifferent to these things. And if you are, it is absolutely foolish, just like I was. We're going to see in this story today that, you know, the Jews, the religious leaders of Jesus' time had a lot of things wrong. But one thing they got right is that they were not indifferent towards Jesus. Many people today are indifferent towards Jesus. They think, oh, who cares? How's it relevant on my life? It doesn't matter who Jesus is or who Jesus was. It doesn't matter to me. But the Jews understood at that time, whether they were for him or against him, that they could not be indifferent towards him. His works were too miraculous. His claims were too bold. They knew they had to figure out who this Jesus was because they knew it was the hinge to their entire life. If you would, please open up your Bibles to John chapter 10. verse. Uh, we're going to look at verse 19 through 30. It's page 896 in the Red Bible. 1319 in the Children's Bible. Page 896 in the Red Bible. 1319 in the children's Bible. If you notice in your bulletin, there is an outline um, right here, and uh, you can ignore that. It changed about 9.30 last night, so um, it just wasn't sitting well in my stomach. So what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk through the text today, okay? We're going to walk through it and explain it as it goes. But let's take the whole thing at first and read it together. John 10, verse 19. Actually, let me give you just the preface to this. If you remember... Just prior to this, Jesus was talking. He made audacious claims that he was the good shepherd, that he was the door to the kingdom of God, that he would lay down his life for his sheep, that he would raise it up again. He said that the Pharisees, the the, the religious leaders, were wolves and robbers and thieves. And so he makes all of these claims, all right? And then it rolls into this. All right, so verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedications took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that impresses it into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, if we come to church this morning indifferent towards you, we pray that you would disturb us. We pray that you would show us that the claims of Christ, the works of Christ, cannot lead to apathy. It cannot lead to indifference. It must change us deep inside. And we pray that it would happen today. In Christ's name, amen. So I just want to walk through the passage today. Um, and let me just kind of tell you where I'm going. So verse 19 through 21 is debating the Christ. Verse 22 through 24 is cornering the Christ, and we'll explain this more. Verse 25, authenticating the Christ. Who is the true Christ? How do we know? Verse 26, denying the Christ. Verse 27, following the Christ. And then verse 28 through 30, resting in the Christ. That's a lot there. Uh, we won't cover it, all of them in much detail, but some will go deeper. First, we see verse 19 and 21 through 21, debating the Christ. Look in John 10, 19. Says there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, we covered most of this in the introduction, but you see that the religious leaders are laboring to figure out who is this man, Jesus. What am I to do with him? And so they're investigating. They're looking into the things of Christ because they know that they cannot be indifferent towards him. He causes too much of a stir. And so you see, they're debating about Christ. It goes on, verses 22 through 24, and we see them cornering the Christ. Now, a couple months go by from verse 21 to 22, but it goes on. At the time... At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now let me give you some context to this passage. We know that none of Scripture uh, is, is, is meaningless. All of it is there for a reason. Here we are told that this takes place at the Feast of of dedication. The Feast of Dedication is also known as the Festival of Lights. We also call it Hanukkah. It is a celebration that's not found in the Old Testament. It rises up between the writing of the Old Testament and the coming of the New Testament. It comes about as, as part of an event that happened in 165 BC. In 165 BC, before Christ, there was this Greco-Syrian king his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he attacked Jerusalem. Antiochus loved Greek culture. He loved everything Greek. He loved the Greek gods, all of it. And so what he did is he invaded Jerusalem. He took over the holy city. He took over the temple, and he outlawed Judaism. Matter of fact, if anyone had a Torah, they could be put to death. And so he put 80,000 Jews to death, and he took another 80,000 Jews and sold them into slavery. And so this was a very dark time for the Jews. He took everything away from them. He took their livelihood away from them. 
They weren't allowed to practice their holy customs written out in Scripture. They were forced to bow down to Greek gods. He defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and spreading its blood on the Scriptures. He forced pork down the throats of the priests. He turned the outer courts of the temple into brothels for prostitution. He even went into the Holy of Holies and made sacrifices to Zeus. And so you can imagine this was a very, very dark time for the Jews. And many revolted against him. Many tried to overtake him and many failed. But then came this Maccabean family, these brothers, the Maccabean brothers, and they stood up against this dictator and they triumphed. Through the power of God, they were able to rededicate the temple to its purpose. They're now once again able to worship the living and true God openly. And so from that year on, they would celebrate every winter when they rededicated the temple, when they were once again able to worship the living God. Okay, so this is the context that Jesus is speaking in. And I think it's very important because they come to him in this spirit of look at what God has done, how he has overthrown our oppressors. They come to him and the Jews gather around him, it says in verse 24, and say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I think there are a few reasons why the Jews asked this. You know, there was a division among the Jews. Some of them hated Jesus. Some of them were curious about Jesus and couldn't quite figure him out. I think one reason why they asked Jesus to tell them plainly if he was the Christ, because they knew that if Jesus would publicly proclaim to lots of people that he is the Christ, that they could get him in trouble with the Roman government, that the Roman government would see him as a Maccabean Messiah that has come to overthrow the Roman government. And so the people that don't like Jesus want him to claim that he is Christ publicly so that they can tell the Romans and the Romans can get rid of him. But then there are those other Jews, the Jews who were, I guess you would say, more open to Jesus' Messiahship. And they too want to know, Jesus, would you tell us plainly, are you the Christ? They were hoping for a Maccabean Messiah also. They were hoping that Jesus would come, that he would kick out the Romans and that he would set up a new Israel, one in which it would triumph politically. But Jesus had no desire to be their political Messiah. I think that's one of the reasons we'll look later. But Jesus never does publicly proclaim, I am the Christ. And one of the reasons is because he doesn't want to be the Christ that they're thinking in their head. He doesn't want to be the political Messiah. Christ did not come to establish his kingdom through war. He came to establish his kingdom through love. It's interesting because Napoleon the great emperor, the great conqueror, understood the uniqueness of Jesus. He said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have found empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. As they come to Jesus and they ask him, are you the Christ? They're coming with all their conceptions of who they want the Christ to be. 
And Jesus doesn't want any of it. Jesus has a much higher calling than to lead a political revolt. This is a great warning to us. You know, I, I meet with people and I talk with people. And they tell me that, they, that, that God is leading them in a direction that is inconsistent with the teachings of Christ. They'll say, you know what? The Spirit is leading me to divorce my wife. Well, why? Well, just because I have a peace about it. And it's okay because God wants me to do it. Is that what Jesus says in the Bible? No, but the Holy Spirit is guiding me. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not guiding you. You are making a Christ in your own image that will, that will support your sin. We all do this to one degree or another, but what we see is Christ comes with his own agenda, agenda much higher, much more glorious than the agenda that we have for him. And so we have to study the scriptures to discover who is this Christ. So the Jews debate the Christ, and then they corner the Christ to see, are you the Christ? And then we see Jesus authenticates himself as the Christ. So far, Jesus has been talking in parables of sheep and shepherds and doors. And so they're saying, would you just tell us plainly, just simple, are you the Christ? Look at Jesus' response in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus says, I told you. It may not have been plain like you want, but I told you. I told you by the works that I have done, by the miracles that I have done. You know, it's interesting. The Jews admitted Jesus healed the blind. They say so up in verse 21. They admit that Jesus healed a paralytic. There was extraordinary evidence for Jesus turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people out of five loaves and two fishes. Evidence that he healed the nobleman's son. In the next chapter, he would make a dead man alive. All of this was evidence. All of this was to authenticate the one true Christ. Do you remember the story of John the Baptist when he was in jail? And he is wondering about what Jesus is doing. And so he sends his disciples to go and ask him, are you the Christ? Let me read, read it to you. Matthew 11, verse 2. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them. And notice he doesn't just say yes. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Why does, why does Jesus not just say, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Messiah. Anyone can do that, right? I could do that. Many people have done that. But how do you know if it's the true Christ, the true Messiah? He fulfills the signs of the Old Testament. You see, all of these things that Jesus is telling John's disciples are things that were to come to authenticate the Christ. Things recorded in the Old Testament to say, this is the one, this is the Christ. And so Jesus says, I'm not just going to tell you with my words. I'm going to tell you with my works that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah. Jesus backs up his claim with his miracles. Many of you have heard the phrase, it's time to face the music. Have you heard that? 
There's many theories where it comes from, but the most popular theory is that it comes from a story of a man in China who had conned his way into the orchestra for the emperor. Okay? And it was not an a extravagant living, but there was enough money for him to get by. And so he had a pretty easy life. He would show up to practice, and he'd pretend like he was blowing the flute, but he wasn't. And nobody had noticed. Well, finally the time came. The emperor had a great idea. He said, I want all, everyone from my orchestra to come in one by one and play a solo for me. Well, this guy didn't know anything about playing the flute. And so um, when it, so, and, and he didn't have time to practice it. So when it came to the day, he pretended he was sick, but the emperor's physician came in and he wasn't fooled. And so with the fear of facing the music, he drank poison. You see, this man claimed he could play the flute with his words, but he couldn't back it up with his works. He couldn't back it up with his actions. Jesus says, do you want to know I am the Christ? Don't just listen to my words. Listen, look at my actions. Then you will know that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah. So we see they corner the Christ. They inquire of the Christ. And Christ authenticates himself, not by his words, by just saying I am the Christ, but by proving it through his works. Now you may look at this and you may say, well, if the Jews understood that all of these signs would accompany the Messiah. And if the Jews knew that Jesus did all of these, these things of healing the blind, healing the leopard, how did they not get it? How did they not know that Jesus was the Christ? Why did it not compute for them? Why didn't they believe? I mean, you may say, if I was there and I saw, I would have believed like that. But Jesus tells us exactly why they don't believe. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't a lot of times, he doesn't really preach seeker-sensitive sermons. Look what he says in verse 26. Jesus says, You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Notice the order here. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. So often, we want to switch that around, right? We want to say, oh, you're not part of the flock because you don't believe, right? But Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. This is not how the world normally operates. If you are a Republican, if you say, I am a Republican, it's because you believed in the Republican agendas. If you are a Democrat and you say, I am a Democrat, it's because you believed in the, Democratic, the Democrats' agenda. But here, Jesus flips the order. He says, if you believe in me, it's only because you were already a part of my flock. Later down in verse 29, we actually learn that we're a part of his flock only because the Father has given us to him. And so what does this mean? This means that apart from God's undeserved, unmitigated mercy and grace, none of us would hear the voice of the shepherd. None of us would come to the good shepherd. Even though we could see the evidence all around us, of God's creation and his goodness and his love and his mercy, even though we can see our own sinfulness, we can never come to faith in Christ unless we are a part of his flock. This means that he has come, that he has chosen to shed, to, to pour out his love upon you, to shed his own son's blood for you, that you could come and be a part of his flock and believe and know and understand that Jesus is the Christ. This means that we cannot take any credit for believing in God because it is a gift of his own free will 
to bring you into the fold that you might believe. Why do people deny the Christ? Well, according to Jesus, it's because they're not part of his flock. Now, he goes on to contrast this with those who do, who are a part of his flock, those who do follow him. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This word follow is a present active verb. This is something that is ongoing. It is sustained. Jesus says, do you want to know if you are one of my sheep? Do you want to know if the Christ is your Christ? How you know is, are you following him today, now? So often we point back to a time where I prayed a prayer or I walked the aisle or I was baptized or I, or, or I went for membership and I was approved or whatever it might be. And Jesus says, all those things are great and well, but do you follow me today? You know, it, husbands, if your wife comes to you and says, do you love me? You should say, you should know that I love you because 25 years ago I married you, right? You don't say that. That's not sufficient for them. They want to say, do you love me today? A mark of Christ's sheep is not a single instance, but it's a lifetime, ups and downs, of following Jesus, of being discipled by his word and his spirit and his people and his church. We are called to follow Christ. And then we get to the final section of resting in Christ. Just as our salvation is by the merciful initiative of God. Our preservation, our keeping in the faith, is by the ongoing grace-saturated work of God. These might be the most comforting words ever written in any book in all of history. Verse 28, Jesus says this about his sheep. He says, I give them eternal life. Jesus doesn't give partial life. He doesn't give temporary life. He always gives eternal life. He goes on. He says, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes further. My father who has given them to me, there's that passage, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. See, Jesus' statement here assumes that things, people will try to snatch you out of his hand. Whether it be Satan, as in Job's case, or false teachers, in the case of the Galatians. Things and people and teachings will try to snatch you out of his hand. But he says, nothing will snatch you out of my hand because my grip is strong. When we take our kids places like the YMCA, for example, we bring our big Suburban, we call it Clifford, the big red truck, and uh, we pull up our Suburban, and the kids start to get out, and usually Trish is holding Cooper, and then we have Corbin and Caleb hold hands because we're in a parking lot, and it's scary, and cars are driving, and there's a lot of blind spots, and I usually get the job of taking Carissa, and so I grab Carissa by the hand, and I know Carissa seems very mild-mannered here, but she is an independent woman. All right. She is an independent woman. And when I grab her hand, she starts bucking like a Bronco almost every time because she hates 
for me to hold her hand, but I will carry her through the parking lot and she will be taking my hand here and there and there. And then she'll drop limp and she'll do all of these things trying to get away from dad, right? The reason why she is safe is not because she is holding my hand is because I am holding hers and I will not let go until we reach safety. The promise that Jesus gives here is that he will never let go of your hand. We sang the song, oh no, you never let go. This is such good news, isn't it? Do you realize how prone to wander you are? Do you realize how much you stray, how you run, how you flee from God all the time? How you're like a buck and bronco, how you don't want to obey him, you don't want to walk with him, you don't want to hold his hand, you want to rebel against him. And he says, you know what? I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to get you to safety and I will never let go. The good news of the gospel is that your preservation in the faith is not up to you, but it's up to God. We don't have a wishy-washy gospel, and a gospel with unstable foundations that are contingent on me. It is contingent on God himself who says, I will never let you go. He proves this at the cross. You see, if, if Jesus is lying here, if Jesus lets even one of his sheep perish, just one, the cross is void because Jesus no longer is this perfect sacrifice. He's a liar and he can't sacrifice. But because he always holds true to his promises, every single time he is the sinless sacrifice for our sins and he holds our hand that we should never perish. If you are here today and you are discouraged by your sin, if you are guilt-ridden and you think, how could God ever love me? How can I ever stay up with God? The good news is you don't have to because God holds on to you. And this is the promise that Christ communicates here. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, if you have it, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. All of us probably have friends that we know, maybe in youth group, who love the Bible, who went on mission trips, but went away to college and ran away from the church. And what we learn is that either they're, they're, they're sheep who have gone astray, that Christ is going to come and bring back to himself their prodigal sons who will come home, or they were never indeed one of Christ's sheep. But if you are Christ's sheep, he will hold on to you. He will bring you back to himself, and he will take you to safety. Let me conclude with this illustration, just thinking about this final point. When you drive around town, sometimes you will see on banks there is a uh, sign or it will be on their, their postage or whatever, and it will say FDIC certified, right? FDIC certified, which stands for Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, okay? Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This started uh, after the 1920s when the banking industry was, was very unstable, very rocky. People were losing money, and they wanted to give people an assurance in the banking system. And so what this is, is it's basically just insurance. It's kind of like your car insurance. You pay into it. A bunch of people pay into car insurance. And if something goes wrong with your car, then they will help pay for your car to get fixed if you get in an accident or whatever it might be. So with FDIC insurance, the banks pay into this insurance 
And if the bank goes under for some reason, your money is guaranteed to be there up to 250000 And so not only does this bank ensure you will not lose your money, but it's also backed by the government. And so your money is doubly secured. Ever since this was instituted in 1934, the FDIC, no one has ever lost money, at least from what the website said. No one has ever lost a dollar of the insured money. You see, the FDIC gives people a peace of mind that they will never lose their money. The G-O-D, (laughs) sorry, I know it's cheesy. The G-O-D gives people an even greater peace of mind that they can never lose their salvation. That even when we let go, he is holding on to us. This great love, this great Joy is something that we cannot remain indifferent to. Today, is God calling you to himself? Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd saying, come to me? This great salvation is offered to you in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. The good news that it's not up to us, it's up to you that you have accomplished salvation, that you will finish salvation, that you will finish the good work that you have started in us, that you will carry us to safety, you will carry us to heaven because we are doubly secure in the hands of Jesus and in the hands of the Father, and we praise you for that. Lord God, may this secure love spur us to lives of holiness, to lives of joyfulness, to lives of rest in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.